the generalist appears in this moment because suddenly the pressure of the the rapid change, the turbulence of the environment is to become more adaptable or more evolvable. And that means having a less fixed, less hyper-specialized sense of self. Hello, and welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we speak with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I spoke with Michael Garfield, who's a real Renaissance man. He's a talented musician, a fine artist and illustrator, a prolific podcaster, and even a paleontologist. He's the host of the Future Fossils podcast and the Complexity podcast for the Santa Fe Institute. And previously, he worked with a range of fascinating other organizations, including being a community manager for the Long Now Foundation, an in-house philosopher for the Crypto Crew, and a writer and editor for the Globalish Institute. His online profiles describe him as a context provider rather than a content provider and a rift navigator. Our conversation was wide-ranging and explored the need for generalists in our highly specialised world. In particular, we talked about why neuroplasticity is the best antidote to uncertainty, the nature of the technical and evolutionary transition we are in right now, and why would we want to live in the future. So I started out by asking him, what is the purpose of a polymath? Enjoy. If you look at the growth of human knowledge production and the scaling and why it is that we are in this situation where we've hyper-specialized into, you know, it's not just that, you know, you're a neuroscientist now. It's like you study some tiny piece of the brain. And, you know, we look back on, you know, I, I talked about this a little bit with Andrea Wolf about how Alexander von Humboldt was kind of like the last legitimate polymath in the Western world, because that was a point at which we were going through a similar explosion of information to what we're going through now. And he reached a point in his life where he could no longer do it all himself, where he could no longer hold it all within himself and had to recruit this community of scholars around him to continue to carry on the work. And I think that you know we're we're deep into that paradigm, and at the point now where we're starting to wonder, and I mean this is really the raison d'etre of the Santa Fe Institute, right? Is how do we put these pieces back together? How do we find the you know the deep underlying commonalities between these different disciplines? How do we kind of move beyond disciplinary thinking? And I see them as you know as one way of doing this. I think my heart is sort of equally bound to. William Irwin Thompson's Lindisfarne Association, which, you know, after he left MIT in the 1970s, he founded this sort of post-academic transdisciplinary think tank for the visualization and immanentization of a planetary culture. It was much more open to cultural 
qualitative, even like spiritual concerns. And Lindisfarne was behind the earliest neurophenomenological research. They, they were behind some of the early, what, what eventually became the Mind and Life Institute, which you know works with you know the Dalai Lama and, and other people to study the relationship between the phenomenological reports of meditators and the neuroscientific reports of what's actually going on in the brain hmm. of a meditator. Yeah. So at any rate, to your question, I think that what happens is that as a, a system, like think about like an ecosystem grows and it, every new species creates new opportunities for parasites or for symbiotic, you know, mutualistic relationships it's a non-zero sum kind of additive thing and like two plus two equals five in an ecological frame. And so eventually, because the number of possible relationships grows faster than the number of nodes in a network or the number of agents in an ecology or economy, that system starts to undermine itself. It overreaches. Like you think about like a sunflower that grows too fast and then it's got this huge head, but it's it lacks the connective tissue. Like it, it, you know, if the stalk doesn't grow as fast as the flower, that's maybe not a like a perfect example, but it, it's fundamentally the same. No, no, I like it. It makes you sense. Um, and so you need people that are performing a kind of connective or ligamentary function. You need mm. couriers. You need red blood cells that are transporting oxygen and other nutrients from one part of this thing to the other. And so I see the work that you do and the work that I do in this broader frame of why it is that we justify the work of generalists, synthesists, integrators in a, you know, a global knowledge economy. Because if we, I mean, you know, part of it is just the unbelievable waste of redundant effort if people are working on opposite ends of the same problem and don't know it. Yeah. If I could just quote you back at you briefly, or you might have been quoting somebody else, I think. You said, when unpredictability increases, the inefficiency of the generalist starts to pay off. I had to write that down because I thought, oh, that's interesting. For me, that's kind of reassuring because I'm spending a lot of my time doing stuff that is sort of tangential to what I'm on any particular day supposed to be doing. And there's a certain amount of anxiety or uh, questioning that comes with that activity. It's like, you know, what, how am I being productive in this day, in this moment, in this hour? And yet it does feel like unpredictability and uncertainty is just, if not to the max, then certainly gr far greater than gen a generation or maybe two ago. And so so the, the, the generalist, the connective tissue, I like that description, can play that, that connecting role. That is a distillation of conversations I've had with a lot of people. You know, what you see in like a mass extinction when, you know, the system is disturbed either by an in internal or external force, you know, it's a comet at the age of the end of the age of dinosaurs. But like, I have this uh, armchair hypothesis that the lesser but also quite significant extinction that happened in the middle of the age of dinosaurs was due to the the advent of flowering plants you know this is something i would love to find paleobotanists to work on with me to actually you know study the uh the way that food webs evolve at the end of the jurassic and the the early cretaceous because you see one sort of regime of terrestrial fauna like stegosaurus and these other creatures completely disappear and they're you know, because they were dependent on a terrestrial ecosystem that was relatively stable, you know, that it was, you know, coniferous plants 
and ferns and then the flowers come in and shake up everything and i see that as kind of akin to what we're living through now that that digital technologies are basically changing the information landscape of the planet in the way that flowers did 140 150 million years ago hmm. and that the consequence is this instability it's uh, a system that i mean if you just listen to the rhetoric of silicon valley it's all about disruption and there's not a lot of attention paid to or or really like respect paid to the things that should not be disrupted you know like are, should we really disrupt the spinal cord or is that just seems like a fabulous opportunity to a cancer to you know like get some sugar out of this situation you know, like, hey, here's an opportunity. And so we, I think we, you know, we really have to be careful recognizing, you know, like aggregating these sort of economic opportunities across different timescales and understanding when, you know, growth in the short term is actually a really, really bad idea for long-term sustainability, resilience, et cetera. But what happens when this kind of transitional turbulent moment is going down is that you know, everybody that was dependent on this narrowly defined specialist strategy. So actually, like, I really like the way that David Krakauer puts his, you know, he defines modernity as the era at which point culture itself was learning faster than any human individual. Hmm. And so the culture is aggregating everyone's, you know, everyone's understanding and growing and evolving and updating itself faster than any of us can. And so there's this enormous pressure, like we were you know, talking about with, with Humboldt, there's this enormous pressure that all of us feel to try and keep pace. But what, when was that tipping point, do you think, in his, in his mind, when modernity kicks in? Um, printing press, probably. Okay, yeah. Around that time. I mean, I, you'd have to ask him. But I mean, I think that that's, that's the point at which, you know, something shifts and we're no longer just constantly rediscovering the same stuff over and over again, you yeah. know, like writing maybe, you know, it's like, there's, there's all, it's, it's never just like, it's contrary to the way that people want to talk about history. It's never just like a decisive moment, right? These are like, these are things that happen in stages. Like even flowers were around for millions and millions of years before this kind of turning point that I'm talking about. But what do you think we're transitioning to then? I mean, I know that's a impossible question, but so we're in the middle of this major evolutionary and technological transition. I think that the reason people fear the conversation of a dark age is because modernity is kind of obsessed with luminance and transparency. You know, we talk about the age of enlightenment and in the okay. age of enlightenment, which, you know, I've I've had a number of conversations and I'm, I'm in the middle of writing this thread into a book about the glass age in which you know the modern world is sort of defined by the material agency of glass of test tubes screens fiber optics and in a marshall McLuhan sense this is a little maybe too on the nose but it is the invisible environment of our media that is shaping the way that we think it's shaping the way that we we relate to one another it has this top-down causal influence you know all of us mm. are in, in nicholas carr's excellent book the glass cage you know he talks about automation as as an extension of this that we don't even realize the ways that that these systems are kind of making us dumber 
and, mm. you know, and eroding something, you know, really, really important. But at any rate, you know, I, I think that my, my friends in Weird Studies podcast just did, they just did an episode on light and shadow about how the, the Western modern world, and they talk about how basically we're living now in the new Jerusalem, in this like shining city at the end of time. This prophecy is a prophecy of the modern world in which we inhabit that, you know, you go to Times Square and it's just like bright as day, 24 hours every day. And, you know, we lose, first of all, I mean, I've, I've had several people on the show dating back to Jessa Gamble on Future Fossils 26, who incidentally introduced me to Chris Kutarna, who introduced me to Rob Poynton. And so like that conversation is the seed of this one where yeah. she was talking about circadian rhythms and, and the way that the modern world has destroyed them. And of course, you know, one of the big inspirations for future fossils was Doug Rushkoff's book, Present Shock, which talks about the way that the digital realm wants everything to be happening at the same time, whereas the human world is organic and depends on these uh, cyclicities. And so there's a fundamental tragic mismatch why does the digital realm need things to happen simultaneously? Is that, is that necessarily always the case? Well, I mean, you know, to the extent that the digital world grows out of this, uh, Carl Friston, neuroscientist, talks about the brain uh, in terms of it being a free, free energy minimizing or rather like uncertainty minimizing. Mm -hmm. So in like an information theoretical sense, intelligence is about... David David Krakauer would say it's about making a hard problem into an easy problem. And that happens by reducing the dimensionality of the problem, you know, by identifying what of this undivided whole cloth of experience you can throw out. The brainstem is doing this for us all the time. Our cultural phenomena, you know, our, our, the code that we inhabit is a way of structuring us algorithmically within a certain to sort of encode stable features of our environment in a way that makes it easier for us to get around in the world. And so, you know, this mm. loops back all the way around to the relationship between generalists and trauma and innovation, because, you know, trauma is an indicator of an unstable environment, right? And it's, it's the brain's response to this instability by branching out explosively to the, you know, the modern world is at odds with itself. And I'll, I'll send you a piece I wrote about improvising out of algorithmic isolation in which I, I quote Zygmunt Bauman, whose book Liquid Modernity identifies that the modern world is, is fundamentally of two characters, that it is obsessed with control, but it's also obsessed with transformation and undermining itself. And I think that this is really just sort of an amplification or a hyper of what has always been the case about cognition, which is, you know, that it's this balance between adaptation and control, you know, hmm. and ab about trying to sort of compress the features of our environment into reliable code that we can then use to navigate it, which is, again, why when a, a system undermines itself and suddenly, you know, stable features of the environment are no longer stable, and I th I'm not sure I actually ever really nailed the answer to that question that you posed, but it's, I think it's because uh, we, as generalists, tend to be inefficient in a stable environment, right? You know, you're just like interested in too many different things, you know, not good at exploiting opportunities so much, more, more tuned to the exploration. And so this is where 
you know, I think that the generalist comes in, in, into a global civilization or a planetary culture, and it's important to distinguish them. But uh, the generalist appears in this moment because suddenly the pressure of the, the rapid change, the turbulence of the environment is to become more adaptable or more evolvable. And that means having a less fixed, less hyper-specialized sense of self. Like if you think about it in terms of machine learning algorithms, your, your output is only as good as your input, right? So you actually get much better results trying to predict the behavior of chaotic and complex systems by introduce by reinjecting noise into your your training data, and you know because because you can't because no no sample of the world is ultimately adequate to model the complexity of the world, right? <laughs> and so like the the world is fundamentally uncertain, and so the only way that you can adequately model a fundamentally uncertain world is by taking what you think you know about it and adding noise. And the more uncertain the world, the more noise you need to generate reliable uh, predictions, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, in a weird way, this is like, and this is some, a conversation I really ought to, I ought to have with Doug. I think that he, uh, he never came up with any answers in present shock about like what happens next. But, you know, I think that in the years since, you know, and his his work with Team Human, I think he's sort of embodying this understanding that the unquantifiable is is necessary as part of a, a strategy for titrating this insane obsession with a perfect memory that will then somehow lead to perfect predictions. And that was his whole point. Like that's what the digital does. Is you know, it's it records everything. And then it uses everything as part of this enormous training data set to try and predict the future, like the rest of your life so that, you know, Google will know what you want before you do. And the resistance to that, that sort of cybernetic totalism and, and technocratic paradigm and its oppression is in improvisation and in, in noise and that then again, you know, now I just want to sort of like give a shout out to our patron saint of improvisation, Robert Poynton, and his work with Yellow as as like a very necessary thing in this time. So I, mean, I was talking about some of this stuff with um, Margaret Heffernan. I don't know if you know her, but um, no. and she was kind of saying uncertainty gets a, a bad reputation as as a, as a bad thing to be minimized. But actually, who wants to know, you know, with absolute certainty, the day that we're going to die? Imagine if you and I knew that, you know, on this particular day in the future would be our last day on Earth. How would we live our lives differently as a result of that information? And, you know, most people when faced with those sorts of options would, you know, run away from those. And actually, you know, the joy in life comes from the surprise encounter or, or whatever it might be. That for me, that was really nice, a reframing of uncertainty. Just two other things. I'm really enjoying hearing you speak. I can't quite make all the connections with all the things that you're referring to, but that's also, I feel like it's kind of washing over me in, a, in somehow like a sort of soothing blanket. So thank you. You'll have to edit this, so it'll it'll integrate. Uh, well, I, I don't think I can edit it, actually. But um, <laughs> So uh, whoever's listening to this, if they're still hanging on in there, congratulations. But yeah, the two things 
that again it's almost like synesthesia but there's there's memories or things that i'm reminded of hearing you speak and they're two incredibly different uh, experiences but maybe i can just share them and, and see where it takes this conversation but um one is in the brexit referendum a few years ago a politician called michael gove made a, a famous statement in in the uk media at least saying because all the experts were saying brexit's going to be terrible for the economy and, and michael gove said something along the lines of well we, we've had enough of experts and this comes back to the kind of specialist generalist kind of the, the conversation we were having earlier so there's just something about the role of expertise and uh sort of transcending that somehow but the other thing sorry i'm just kind of riffing um off some of what you said and this may not be making any, any sense to you or others but that's what we do here you talked about glass and this glass age or something and uh, i know you're writing a book i don't know if this is the same thing uh, why, uh, about living in the future which i wanted to come on to talk about as well but i just want to share an experience and it was about 10 years ago i went to an amazing exhibition and it's not very often that I'm blown away by an exhibition in a gallery. I must admit, I'm not. It's not really my thing. But the, it was in the V&A Gallery, the Victorian Albert Gallery in London, which is a pretty eclectic gallery. I don't really know what the unifying theme is, but they've got a uh, they've got a room full of costumes and fashion, and a room full of statues, and a room full of different kind of objects. And the way this exhibition ran was they'd commissioned pretty famous musicians mostly to write a piece of music inspired by different rooms in the gallery and you would put on this little headset and then when you walked into the room a piece of music would play and so for instance David Byrne the lead singer of Talking Heads sort of playfully chose and and the musicians could choose any room in the gallery they liked and so David Byrne chose uh, one of the toilets so rather than these high flute galleries <laughs> with these precious objects he had people walking to it, albeit it was a beautiful Victorian toilet. So it was quite an interesting kind of space, but it was still a toilet. And so you'd stand in there and you'd listen to a piece of music composed by David Byrne. But the the one that really blew me away, and the reason I'm mentioning this is, do you know Cord the musician Cordelius? I don't know quite what he's been up to for the last decade, but he, um, I think he collaborated with Beck back in the day. Anyway, he produced a piece of music for the glass room. So the V&A has this beautiful room of objects made out of glass bowls and chandeliers and and this music it was sort of electronic -y, uh, sort of water dripping through glass through synthesizers and it was incredibly sparkly and, and the room as you might imagine a room full of glass had was well illuminated and so you're getting all these kind of uh, refractions of the light and it was just a transcendent experience and, and it really really blew me away as a as an experience and it's very hard to describe but anyway I'll, I'll see if I can dig out that track and maybe at least a photo of that room so you can sort of get a bit of a sense of what that was like. Anyway, I just wanted to share that. There wasn't a question around that. But you, you're writing an open book about how to live in the future. But there's all this chat these days about living in the now and, you know, meditation and mindfulness and presence in, in this very moment. And so I guess my question, and maybe this is possibly my final question, is why would we kind of want to live in the future rather than living in the now. So uh, for me, there was something around the aspect of time. Well, okay. So just to briefly address the issue of expertise, I think, yeah. you know, you, you basically anchored what I've been saying, I think for a lot of this, the last major piece of this book that I'm working on is about neoteny or pedomorphosis, this trend in developmental evolutionary biology toward the adult form of an organism 
retaining childlike characteristics. You know, that really pegs into everything that we've discussed insofar as why are humans basically these like, you know, adult juvenile primates? And it's, I think the plausible narrative around that is that our social context is so much more complex that we require lifelong neuroplasticity. Hmm. We require, you know, what in say a chimpanzee or a gorilla would be, you know, a childlike curiosity throughout our entire lives. And as the complexity of our built environment and, you know, the society that inhabits it continues to increase, I don't think anyone listening to this will be, uh, it's like unfamiliar with the spike in conversation lately about lifelong learning, being able to retrain oneself to adjust to a rapidly shifting labor landscape. And like these kinds of, you know, when is it, when is it time to go back to school? And, you know, what happens to the people who just can't, you know, who are overfit to a lost world and how do, how does society take care of them? And, Mm. you know, I was told the reason I don't have a PhD is because I wanted to pursue these kinds of insanely interdisciplinary questions when I got out of my undergraduate evolutionary biology program and I was searching for a place to do it. And I was everywhere I turned, I was told you can't specialize in synthesis. You know, you cannot become an expert in being this like woolly, childlike, playful, exploratory, boundary crossing, transgressive, you know, intellectual trespasser of these guarded intellectual domains. That academia is is guild structure and you can't just flow back and forth between them. I mean, that was 2005. And I think, although that's still, you know, a problem, it's not the kind of problem that it was 16 years ago. I think the pressure, the incentive to move beyond that has has shifted and is somewhat now much more in favor of generalists and synthesists and interdisciplinary departments functioning as this connective tissue between other departments and so on. Mm. But I mean, so to your point, to your point about the future, you know, I, I lean heavily on on the writing of Rice University, Tim Rice University professor, uh, philosophy professor Timothy Morton, and his book Hyper Objects, and you know where he talks about civilization or global warming or these things as you know a structure that extends so vastly in space and time that we don't even realize we're inside of it. And you know, and for most reasonable purposes, like the internet is one of these. It's a hyper object, you know, and actually what you are, what I am is a hyper object. You know, we are so much more, you know, we talk about Gregory Bateson's mind at large and how actually the self is sort of extends cybernetically out into the environment through our technologies and so on. Hmm. And so because of this, the timescale at which these hyper objects exist is greater than our own. We have to wrangle with the fact that the now of these larger objects exists in our future. You know, our now is only a very tiny slice of this macroscopic now. And so like I worked for a little while last year as part of the Long Now Foundation, and that's a big piece of their 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 thinking is like, how do we get people to think about the big here and the long now in Brian Eno's conception of of those terms? And so it's it's really not in some sense about living in the future. It's about living in in a larger now. Mm. that contains our what we think of as our future. 
and can, contains what we think of as our past and to recognize that those are extant and that we're living with them now. We're living with their influence in this, in this sort of narrow slice of time. Thank you, Michael. So the purpose of the polymath is to be the connective tissue between people working on the same problem and perhaps don't even realize it yet. I really liked what he said about modernity being the era in which culture itself is learning faster than any individual, and that cognition is the balance between adaptation and control. I also thought it was interesting that he noted that there's not a lot of attention and respect paid to the things that we should not disrupt. And lastly, a wry smile at the paradox of the fact that you can't specialize in synthesis. This episode is an edit of a much longer, more wide-ranging conversation that included all sorts of other stuff that I decided to edit out, but I think Michael's planning to share from one of his podcasts, if you're interested to check that out, which included, amongst many other things, the psychology of circumcision, which was fascinating. Please do check out a bunch of links about Michael in the episode description if you want to find out more about any of the things we talked about. And this podcast was produced by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. Many thanks to all of our community members, clients, partners, and patrons, without whom none of this would be possible. Thank you to you all. Please do share this episode with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Any aspiring polymaths out there. And of course, like and subscribe to the episode or give us a little review as well. So until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.